0: My name is Foot, I'm the pastor here. Um, if you would, uh, if you got a connection card on the way in, um, if you would just fill that out for us, put your name and your, a- your address or your, your um, email address, whatever you feel comfortable giving it to us, we'd like to be able to have that. You can either drop it off at the info table on the way out, or you can put it in the offering plate at the end of the service. And we just want to know how to be able to uh, best get in touch with you, best communicate with you, um, give you information um, about us. <clears throat> We are in the book of 1 Timothy. We're preaching through the scriptures here um, for about the next, I don't know, 15, 20 weeks in this, in this particular book of 1 Timothy. Um, and the reason why we do that is because we have a, uh, a deep belief in the scriptures of themselves. That they are able to convict, they are able to change, they are able in and of themselves, they're sufficient. They're enough to be able to cause our affections to be ignited for Christ as well as um, show us where we need to change, show us where we have problems, and the Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us and teach us in all things. And so um, the best thing that we can do um, is to go through the Scriptures in a, in a systematic understanding way because of what we believe about the Scriptures. So we're in First Timothy today, and I just want to give you a little bit of a heads-up and review about what we did last week. We started our first week in First Timothy last week where we did verses 1 through 11, and... Um, some of the things, just to highlight what we did last week, um, just to remind you as we go in, is that we learned that this is the first of two letters written by Paul to Timothy. Um, he wrote this letter somewhere around 62 to 64, um, AD, AD 62 or 64. So we're talking 30 years or so after Christ had died. Um, and he wrote this letter to Timothy, who was a pastor. And the reason why he did this was to confront... Um, <clears throat> In the town of Ephesus, where Timothy was a pastor, he wanted to confront some things that were going on. Um, specifically, he wanted t- Timothy to have proper worship in the church. He wanted to give Timothy some qualifications for elders and deacons. He wanted to confront false teaching because there were some false teachers that had come in, as well as exhort Timothy and the entire church into holiness. Now, <clears throat> Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus. We also can look at the book of Ephesians, where Paul writes directly to them in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. He tells them that God has given pastors and apostles in order and he's given us these these pastors and apostles in order to equip the saints, which is you. So he's given churches, pastors in order to equip the saints, which is you for the work of ministry. So what we can learn from that is it's not just me or the pastors of a church or elders of a church trying to do the ministry, but we are equipping you so that all of us can do the work of the ministry. So you don't just come in here on Sunday, hear something that might you know, stir your affections and, 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 and about you know, go out there and not do anything. Um, the idea is that you're going to come in here and you're going to learn, and then as you learn and grow in your holiness and as you learn and grow in your understanding of Christ, it's going to equip you to go out and be a minister as well. So there's two things that we learned last week whenever we were doing this. Um, Paul's telling Timothy, a pastor, there's two things I want you to do. There's two things I want you to know. And those two things, I believe... Um, are applicable for everyone, since everyone's supposed to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. These aren't just two things that pastors should do, though they are specifically given to pastors, but everyone should be doing it. And those two things were, number one, they should teach sound doctrine. And that's really more specific to the pastor. But you should be studying Scripture in such a way that you're studying to be able to identify false doctrine in the church or identify false doctrine in your community group or in your neighborhood or in your Bible studies or in your family, etc., and be able to talk to them about that. But then the second thing that we saw is um, if we just do that, if we just learn doctrine, then we'll become very arrogant. We'll become the most arrogant, self-centered, self-righteous people there are. So the second thing that Paul tells us, which is in verse 5, is that we should really love other people. Our life should be... um, guided in such a way it should be um, shown by as Christ's love falls on us, it should be guided in such a way that we want to love others in the same way Christ loves us. And so it should be marked by love. So those are the two things that we that we saw last week. Um, So when we're going in here, you'll really see Paul's kind of continuing in that same idea. Um, There's nothing really different. Um, I think if I'm not mistaken, because the entire world um, knows uh, there was this little episode that happened this past Sunday, if you're not familiar. Um, there's this crazy guy by the name of Kanye West that walks out onto a stage where, you know, this 18-year-old, I don't know how old she is, who is winning an award, and he just wants to let everyone know that um, she didn't deserve to win it, but Beyonce deserved to win it. And so every, anybody know what I'm talking about? Of course you do, because we all live in America, and it was the only thing that was happening in America. Um, Yeah, it's it's on the blogs, it's on the Twitters, it's on everywhere, like everybody on the talk shows talking about it, and everybody's mad at Kanye West, and everybody's like, you don't mess with Taylor, you know, Um, and so, and then it kind of progressed throughout the week. All of a sudden, Kanye's this big, horrible person, because he did that, oh, but he went on Jay Leno the next night, and he cried, and everybody said he was fine, and then Barack Obama, you know, throws his little two cents in, that's supposed to be not taped, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google that, Um, but he calls him a name, and so, um, but we get through the week, and, and, and by Tuesday or Wednesday, everybody kind of talked about it Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And then by Wednesday, Thursday, who talked about it? It's not on the blogs. It's not on the talk shows. David Letterman left it alone. All of a sudden, it's gone. And the reason why is because America, we move so fast with information that we take it in, we, we think about it, we consumerize it, and then we just spit it out, and we totally forget it. The problem with that is we do that same thing with the Bible, we, we learn things about Christ last week. And you come in here ne- this, this past this week, and you've forgotten everything you've learned. Because you are so consumeristically driven. Um, information, grab it in, drive through fast food window and throw it out, and, and you've forgotten about it. The timeless truths of Scripture when you come in here are totally forgotten by Tuesday or Wednesday. And the reason why I know that is because I pleaded with everyone to write down a name. Write down a name and follow through this week. The Holy Spirit is, is telling you. I gave a list from here when it said, don't you know someone who um, is disobedient to their father and mothers, fathers and mothers? Don't you know someone who's sexually immoral? Don't you know someone who might practice homosexuality? Don't you know someone who's an enslaver or a liar or a perjurer? Don't you know someone? Maybe it's you, but don't you know someone? God laying someone on your heart right now, write down their name. And if we were to do a poll, I guarantee you, not even half of you followed through. Maybe you didn't even write down a name. You're thinking somebody didn't even write it. You know, I'm not even going to write it because I know I'm not going to follow through. We can't approach Christ and his scriptures in the same way that we approach American pop culture. They are not the same. They are absolutely not the same. And if we do that, we're going to show ourselves in the end, I think, to not really have known Christ. The timeless truths of God must move and shape our hearts in ways that we don't just forget about it three days later. Like some thug Kanye or some crazy girl Taylor no one messes with or, you know, whatever Barack Obama wants to say. Um, We saw in verse 11 last week, it says that we have been entrusted with the glorious gospel of the blessed God. If you're a Christian, you have been entrusted with this. It has been given to you by God to do something with, not just idly stand by and let life pass you by. And so what I want to do today um, as we go through verses 12 through 20, there are effects of the gospel. Paul is going to outline in these verses, the gospel has come to him and he says, I've been entrusted with this and these next 9 verses 12 through 20, he says what his life looks like. These are the effects that the gospel has taken on his life and how he's living now. And so what I want to do here is I want you to see these effects. These are basically essential aspects of the gospel that they must be present in your life. And as you go, not being lazy and not forgetting two days later, but as you really go and are marked by this, you're going to go and actually tell people these essential aspects of the gospel. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, I'm going to read the text and then and I want I want to pray for help before we go because the problem is this I can I can stand up here and I can I can give you illustrations about how lazy we are in our faith and how we treat the God's word just like entertainment tonight um, and I can I can beg you to be moved by it but I can't make you be moved by it the only way you'll be moved by it is if the Holy Spirit comes and does a work in your heart. So I'm going to pray that God would not just make this some normal Sunday for you where you've checked it off the list so you can go get lunch at K&W cafeteria. But this is something that's going to be massively life-changing for you. And that God himself is going to come in here and wreck your world and change your heart so that you will have true affections for him. Let me read the text and then we'll pray. It says, I thank him who has given me strength. This is 1 Timothy 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenius and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan that they may not learn to blaspheme. Let's pray. Father. This next few moments. These next half hour. 45 minutes are. Are precious. Because you brought everyone here. Sovereignly. This morning. In this place. In this room. To hear from your word. Not from me. But from you. From your word. And so father. I pray for myself. That you would. Remove. Me out of the equation. And that every word I say. Will be Holy Spirit given. God I plead for you. To come. On behalf of my friends here. I pray. For me and myself. And my friends here. That you would come Holy Spirit. And do a work supernaturally. I don't pray for a natural. Response for them. Where maybe they feel guilty. And they tried real hard for three days. But a supernatural response. For them and for me. That our hearts would be so transformed. So ignited by the truths of Christ. That we would not leave here. In a ho-hum manner. Because we have been entrusted with the gospel. That we would see how terribly sinful we are. That we would realize everything comes from You. All of our faith, all of our hope, all of our love only comes from you. That our life has been given to you, to us by you. And we should be living a life of worship for you, Father. That we should fight the good fight of faith. And so God, I pray for a time this morning where we would clear our heads, clear our minds, get rid of distractions, get rid of the conversations we had this morning and last night that weren't pleasing to you for now, and focus on what you need to say to us this morning regarding our life. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The last uh, 50 years of evangelicalism have reduced the gospel. And becoming a Christian, a real Christian, to um, just pray this one repair, prayer with me. And if you recite it and really mean it in your heart, then you're good. And you're going to heaven and you're, you're fine. Don't worry about anything. Um, and there are necessary aspects that we must communicate to people regarding the gospel. That it is not just, say, say this with me, dear God, dear God. Come into my heart, come into my heart. If that's all we've reduced it to, and if we just bring it down to the easiest way, all right, how can I get people to say a prayer with me? All we're going to do is try to get them to say a prayer and fill out a card, herd them in and herd them out, and there's not going to be any life change. There's more to it than just that. And the results are doctrinally hollow members of churches who have not, whose lives have not been changed by the gospel whatsoever, but have been really validated in their sin to just continue in it and just keep walking down the path of immorality and thinking that computers and Twitters and blog and some stupid show like Family Guy's life. And that's not life. And that's not life in Christ. And we shouldn't be satisfied with that kind of life. I want to introduce you... To a story. Um, And I think some of you might have heard this before. But this is a story of someone. That if you ask them. They they would say they knew Jesus. As a matter of fact. They would say that they've called out to him. That they've prayed the magic prayer. um, For salvation. And they would say that they've actually shared Christ with their friends. um, That they've taught classes in church. They've even. What they would say. Seen Jesus's power move in churches. And some of them were mighty. And they would call themselves a church member. Here's the story of this person. It says this. um, Not everyone, this is Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father. If they say, Lord, Lord, that means they've had some kind of thoughts that Jesus... He's God, he's Lord, and so I'm going to call out to him for help. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, speaking of the day that we're in heaven, listen to this. This is. Don't just thank God that I'm saying this right now for the person that's here with you. You need to listen to this. You need to ask yourself, am I this person? Is this me? I've been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, whatever. You need to ask yourself, am I fooling myself right now? Am I so captivated by the world that I've actually fooled myself and this isn't me? You need to think about this. Don't think about anybody else right now besides yourself. Verse 22, on that day, many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name. And do my, many mighty works in your name. In other words. There were people in churches. Who seemingly did things for Christ. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've served in church forever. Maybe you've given. Maybe you've gone on a mission trip. These people have done stuff. Maybe stuff that you've never done. Prophesy and cast out demons. Seemingly you would say. The Holy Spirit is working through them. And then. Verse 23, and then I will declare to them. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, this was written 2000 years ago. Not about the last 50 years of evangelicalism. But if you look around, this is this is us right now. This is where we are. And so what we want to do today is examine a man who had been so moved by Christ that it was evident that he was in love with Christ. And these are the effects of this. And I'm going to say that these are the essential aspects of the gospel that should be there should be evident in your life, as well as whenever you speak it to someone else. You're not just trying to get them to pray a magic prayer. All right, verse 12. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he has judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. And look what he look what he says about himself before he came to know Christ, though formerly I was a blasphemer, totally aware of who he was before he came to know Christ. He doesn't have himself fooled. Maybe you're here right now. Maybe you have totally disregarded your life before Christ and you thought it was not that big a deal. Look what he says. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. Skip down to 15. Look what he says. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Yeah, you've never killed Christians. But Paul has a self-awareness of himself about who he was before Christ that is essential for us in knowing the full aspects of the gospel. And this is the first one. This is the first essential aspect of the gospel. The gospel demands that there be a recognition of sin and being a sinner before God. Both. Number one, of the things you've done, but not just that, the root of that problem, which is the fact that you are a sinner. You were born in the line of Adam. Genesis 3, whenever the fall happened, and every person that that falls in the line of Adam, every person that, that lives after that, is a sinner, which is why it's so rabbit trail essential that Jesus was not born in the line of Adam or else he would have had a corrupt human nature. He had to have been born of a virgin back to the back to this. Um, Let me let me read a verse to you. This is this is Paul in the book of Ephesians describing our state before Christ. Every one of us. This is our state before we came to know Christ. And you this is Ephesians two, verse one through three. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. Every one of us did this right here. Look at it. Following the prince of the power of the air. You followed Satan before you came to know Christ. If you don't know Christ, you still follow Satan. There is no in-between. Well, Satan sounds really bad, but I'm not really a Christian, so I'm kind of in the middle. No, no, that's not how it works. You can't think Satan's really bad, but not follow Jesus. If you don't follow Jesus, you do follow Satan. Knowingly or unknowingly, that's what you're doing. And this is the state of every one of us. We follow the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, look, look at this, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you need to admit that you're a sinner. Not just that. Listen to this quote by C.J. Mahaney. He says, talking about specifically this, this verse in 15, he goes, Sinners of whom I am the foremost. Because you can say, yeah, Paul calls himself the foremost sinner. Are you kidding me? He killed Christians. I've never killed a Christian. Listen to this. Everyone can honestly claim that worst of sinners title. No, it isn't reserved specifically for the Adolf Hitlers, the Timothy McVeys and the Osama Bin Ladens of the world. William Law writes this. We may justly condemn ourselves as the greatest sinners we know. Because we know more of the folly of our own heart than we do of other people. Folly meaning foolishness. We we know more of the foolishness of our own heart than we do of other people's. So admit that you're the worst sinner you know. Admit you're unworthy and deserve to be condemned. But don't stop there. Move on to rejoicing in the Savior who came to save the worst of sinners. The first aspect of the gospel is this. There must be a recognition On your behalf, that you were absolutely outside of Jesus, terribly wretched. You were not just bad, you were dead. Because if you're just bad, all you gotta do is just start being good. That's all you gotta do. Heck, I can be good. I can just stop doing the bad things. That's not the problem. The problem is not that you're bad, the problem is that you're dead. And you've never seen A dead person make himself alive. That's a supernatural work. So when you admit that you're a sinner of whom you are the foremost, there's a self-awareness that comes in that says, if this is true, then I'm dead. And someone has to make me alive. I can't make myself alive. And if someone makes me alive, I owe my life to them. Let's keep going. Verse 14, well, the end of 13, it says, but I received mercy. This is very end of 13 going into 14. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So he was killing Christians because he did not believe in Jesus. And he was ignorant without knowledge. And then it says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. The grace of our Lord overflowed. Grace is giving Paul a gift that he did not deserve. He's giving him something totally undeserved. He did not earn it whatsoever. He didn't work for it. He didn't do anything. He's dead. And he says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with. All right, let's get that sentence structure down. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with. It's telling us that God had given him a gift, an undeserved gift with. What are the things that he gave him? He's going to tell us in just a second. He's going to give him two things. Look what they are. Overflowed for me with. Here it is. The faith that's in Christ Jesus and the love that's in Christ Jesus. There's a gift being given by God to Paul. Here they are. Faith, love. You're dead. You can't produce faith in and of yourself. You can't produce love in and of yourself. You're dead. I'm going to supernaturally awaken you and give you affections for me. Here's the faith and here's the love. Gift from me to you to put back into me. That's exactly what he's saying. This is the second essential of the gospel. Our faith and love for Jesus come from Jesus. Our faith and love for Jesus come from. From Jesus. Now, if you remember, there's two things I want to say here. First thing, last week when I said the second thing that we need to have is love. Don't try to just conjure up that in yourself and stir that up within yourself. It's telling us right here: if you want to love other people, it's only going to come from Christ. You should beg, you should plead God with God, please give me the love I need for others. You are not going to manifest that self in and of yourself. It's only going to come from Him. So ask Him every day to love your wife well. Ask Him every day to love your children well. Ask Him every day to love that roommate who gets on your nerves, who sets 17 alarms, but never gets up at 6.30 and sleeps till 8. True story. I wanted to take it and throw it out of the window. You have to beg Christ for that love. But, look at this. Also... Faith. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 9. Look what it says. This, we just finished 1 through 3. And I gave you your desperate state that you are absolutely a devil worshiper. And then, verse 4, just amazing, amazing. You're dead. You have no hope. There's nothing that can happen unless something supernatural happens. Verse 4. But God. I mean, huge, huge. Verse 4. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. If you're dead, you can't make yourself alive. It can only be done by him making you alive. This should stir your affections for him. This should not just kind of fly by your mind. Oh, yeah, I know that one. Check that box off. I've heard that since I was in VBS when I was nine. Don't let that truth just fly by you and say, I've heard that. It should overwhelm you. Look what he says, by grace, you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. Now, look at this. And this is not your own doing. Your faith is not your own doing. Here it is. It is the gift of God. Here's another place. I can show you multiple texts if I need to. Multiple texts in the Bible will continually say your faith is a gift from God. Not a result of works, because if it wasn't a gift from God, if it was something that you just developed inside of yourself to put in him, then it's a result of works and then you can boast. So in heaven, there'll be one little place reserved on the stage where you can stand there. And while Jesus is getting ninety nine percent of the worship, you're going to get one. Because you were smart enough to figure it all out. And you get to boast. But if you've read Revelation 5, that's not the story. We're all pretty quiet there. And he's getting all the glory. So our faith and love for Jesus come from Jesus. Now the reason why this is so important. And I've kind of hinted on it. All around it. That your salvation is not because of you. But because of him. And if that's the case. Why does your life look the way it does right now? Why does my life look the way it does right now? So captivated by this world rather than Christ and what he's done for me. If I, if I lay here dead and he makes me alive, why do I, once I'm awakened spiritually, instead of coming to him, go to other things in this world and find them attracting rather than the one that gave me life? Why do you do that? Maybe you weren't really spiritually awakened. Maybe you are Matthew 7. Look what it says here. Continuing. Verse 16. It says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, might display his perfect patience. Don't miss the word display. We're wanting to put Jesus on display. And then he says this as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So those who believe need to see Jesus put on display when they see Jesus put on display in somebody's life. They get encouraged to want to do that in their own life. And then look at this. Paul is just so stirred up so affectionate for Jesus that he just kind of stops and needs to have a little a little worship song right here in verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He starts writing about the things of Christ and becomes so stirred up that he has to just launch into this worship to the king of ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I was walking down a road. I was going to go kill people and a light shined down in my face. And it said, why are you doing this? And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, go, go to this town in Damascus and this man will heal you. And he heals him. And all of a sudden, Paul starts knowing who Christ is and he's changed. And so he writes letters. And when he writes these letters, the gospel becomes so real to him. It becomes so stirred up in his affections. That he can't help but just launch into worship. Salvation is about worship. It's about putting his glory on display. This is so essential when we communicate the gospel. When you tell someone all you need to do is pray the prayer. You don't just stop there. You say, listen, you need to receive Christ. The only hope you have is Jesus. But after you put your faith in Jesus... The rest of your life must look like a massive worship service for him. It's all about his glory. All of it. This is the third aspect. The gospel that is your salvation is primarily about Christ's glory being put on display. Christ's glory being put on display. Not your glory being put on display. Now that you've prayed the prayer, you, look how great I am. That's not it at all. Whenever you are made alive, it should make you more Humble. To realize I should be putting His glory on display, not mine. Look at this. Look at His prayer right before He goes to the cross. I want you to notice what He's not saying. Notice what Jesus is not saying as He prays. Right before He goes to the cross, He says this prayer to God. Notice what He doesn't say. This is John chapter 17, starting at verse 3. And this is eternal life that they know you The only true God and Jesus Christ in whom you have sent. It should be up here on the screen. John 17. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now watch this. Watch this. Verse five. Here it is. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, not now, Father, glorify everyone that's going to believe in me. It's now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he was in a state of glory. What became incarnate will now be a God man forever forever. And he's asking right before he goes back up into heaven, right before the cross and then the ascension. He's saying, Father, glorify me now in the same way that I was glorified before I became incarnate. All of our salvation, everything that's going on in this entire world around us has always been about his glory and his glory being put on display. Not how great we are or how wonderful we are or how smart we are by any means. It's always been about him. So when you tell someone the gospel or if whoever told you the gospel didn't tell you this, this is a massive, massive piece. This is one of the reasons we have the problem in America, because someone doesn't say now that you've put your faith in Christ, you go live your life the rest of your life showing that Jesus is your highest treasure. You go live your life saying that now it's time to worship Jesus with everything. They say, oh, you prayed the prayer. Did you really mean it? Now you're good. Now you're good. Get somebody else to do it, too. That way, they don't go to hell. It's missing out on the most important part that his glory is what's primary. Not us. Now, let's continue in 1 Timothy because this gets a little gets a little interesting. It gets very interesting. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. So here's, here's the last piece. This charge. I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you, that by them, you look at what he tells him to do. You may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Here's the last one. First, let me say this. Don't put it up yet. I believe in absolute eternal security. I believe in perseverance of the saints. I believe that we, if we are truly saved, will persevere in our faith to the end and be saved. If we are truly been justified, we will be sanctified and we will be glorified. I do not believe we can lose our salvation. I believe once saved, always saved. I think I just said the same thing eight different ways. So I want all of you to understand what I believe. However, I do not believe that we can ignore the warnings of the Bible, the way it's worded. We can't just gloss over these things. And so we need to say them, the the warnings, the exact same way the Bible says them. And we need to preach them so that we don't have people thinking that they're saved when they're not. This is the fourth essential aspect of the gospel. The, The gospel is that there must be an everyday fight of faith present in our lives. Look what he tells him. Wage the good warfare. Holding faith in a good conscience. You need to hold your faith. You need to fight the fight of faith. You need to wage the warfare. If you're not, then you're not saved. Now, I'm not trying to make salvation um, this magical, like nebulous thing that you have to hold on to at all times. Because I, I honestly do, do believe Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. If God has made you alive truly, then I do believe you will be sanctified and you will be glorified and you will be saved. But I do think that when we see texts like this, I need to go ahead and put them all in front of you so that you are totally aware of what the scriptures say. About fighting the good fight of faith. All right, so here we are. Paul in 2 Timothy tells Timothy this. Um, this is the end of Paul's life, writing to the exact same person. In this text, he tells him to hold faith and wage the good warfare. At the end of Paul's life, he, Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So Paul's telling him at the end of his life, I've done this, I have waged the warfare. I fought the fight. Now, here's the, why, here's the reason why this is so important. Um, that you must fight the good warfare. And, and this is weird language, I know. But I'm going to say it anyway. In order to stay saved. This is why you must fight the good fight. Um, because the immediate context is that Paul is showing us some men who have stopped fighting the good fight. And therefore, are showing us that they are not saved. Look what it says. By rejecting this. And this is verse 19, middle of 19. By rejecting this. Some have made, look what he says, shipwreck of their faith. That's interesting language. They've made shipwreck of their faith. Um, this is what it means. A ship's voyage. This is the metaphor Paul's trying to carry out. Here's a ship's voyage going from one place to another. And faith tra- it's our faith traveling from justification, the moment we put our faith in Christ, the moment we're declared righteous... All the way to glorification. That's our voyage. That's the ship. We're going from justification to glorification. And the voyage itself is sanctification. And unless we actually make it all the way, then we're not going to be fully sanctified. And if we're not fully sanctified, then we make shipwreck of our faith. Um, Shipwrecking one faith comes from a loss of good conscience is what it tells us. Um, So it's important that sanctification actually happen. Look what he says here among whom, so that some people have done it, Hymenaeus and Alexander, they've handed, he says, whom I have handed over to Satan that they might, might not learn to blaspheme. Now, we don't really know about Alexander. Um, it could be, um, Paul references a, a Hymenaeus and an Alexander again in Second Timothy, and it could be the same too. Um, in Second Timothy 4, he references Alexander, and he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm, and the Lord will pay him for his deeds. It could be that Alexander, um, this guy, Hymenaeus, he, he references... I can't say his name. Let's just say it's Hymenaeus, all right? right, um, Second Timothy chapter 2, he says, "...but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they're upsetting the faith of some." So we can see that these guys have made shipwreck. And an interesting thing about Hymenaeus, the shipwreck he made of his faith is not moral... It's doctrinal. He's saying the resurrection's already happened. That's a doctrinal statement. It's not like he went off and took ten wives and, you know, started getting drunk all the time. Or just really, maybe that, this is me and you, just doesn't seem to have real affections for Jesus. cares about the world more. His problem is doctrinal, which sh- lets you show that moral problems is just as important. Now, um, let me show you these verses and I think these verses are really important for us to kind of get a grasp on. Um, and up front, I believe, like I've said, in perseverance of the saints. Here's, here's one um, text that kind of shows us that we can know that we're going to be saved. First John 5.13. Now, I'm still talking about point four. There must be the good fight of faith. And this is essential. Look what it says in First John 5.13. I write these things to you that who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So I honestly believe we can know we have eternal life. I do. But I'm going to put these other texts in front of you to let you know there must be the good fight of faith happening. And if you can look over the last however long in your life and you don't see a good fight of faith. Then you should be scared. You really should. Look what it says. First um, Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15 verses one and two. It says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you were being saved You're on that voyage. You're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. If you hold fast to the words I preached to you unless you believe in vain. Here's another one. Second Timothy two. This saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Let me read you a quote from John Piper, and then I want to read these other two. He says, this means, talking about this, that we must endure to the end that we need to be saved. He says, this means that the ministry of the word, that's the preaching of God's word, God's word, is the instrument or the thing that God uses in the preservation of faith, the thing that will keep us once saved, always saved, as well as the begetting of faith. So the preaching of God's word begins your faith and Keeps your faith in Christ is what he's saying. And he says, we do not breathe easy after a person has prayed to receive Christ as though we can be assured from our perspective that they are now beyond the reach of the evil one. There is a fight of faith to be fought. We must endure to the end in faith if we're to be saved. It's the same thing these texts are saying. Here's another one. Colossians 1. 21 through 23, and it says, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Sounds great. He saved you in order to make you holy. Look what the next verse says in 23. If, indeed, you continue in the faith. All these verses keep showing you is that there is a way to put a false faith in Jesus not a real faith. And I want you to really examine yourself and see is it real or not? If you indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I Paul became a minister. Here's another one, Mark 13:13. 13, 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. There is a fight of faith that must happen. Don't think that all you need to do is put your faith in Jesus and rest easy the rest of your life. Don't think there's not supposed to be an all out war against the sin in your life. So some people this morning, some of you. Who have real faith in Jesus might be examining your life and saying, I need to repent. I need to repent. There's areas in my life where I'm not living this out. I need to repent. I need to make this real in my life. And some of you with a false faith, a convenient faith, a a fast food drive by. I just did it so I don't have to go to hell. Fire insurance faith will not seek repentance and you're going to show that you never were truly saved. Here's the last verse. I don't think I have this up here, so I'm just going to flip over to it. This is in 1 John 2. <clears throat> if it's up, I think it's in here. I can't remember if I put it on the screen or not. 1 John 2. They went. This is speaking of people who came to know Christ and they seemed to have their faith in Christ and they lived in the church. They, they served as a deacon. They gave money to missions. They, whatever. It doesn't matter. They did stuff. But eventually they proved that their faith wasn't real and they left. Look what it says. They went out from us. Those who acted like they were Christians, but eventually left. They left the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. They looked like they were of us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They would have stayed in the faith. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Become plain to who? To us. Who stay. So we can see. There are people who have a false faith and a real faith. Therefore, I want to continue down this path. I want to continue to fight the good fight of faith. Because I don't want to find myself at the end of my life as one who walks out. And find out that I have a false faith, not a real faith. So if this morning, as long as you have breath in you, I'm pleading with you and begging with you to do a real self-examination of your heart. These are these are all the essential aspects, but from here, these are the effects on Paul's life of the gospel, and these should be the effects of the gospel on your life. Here's the great news. If this is you, if you're all of a sudden becoming aware, you know What? All I've ever done is had this easy believism. My whole life is marked by sin, 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 failure, sin, no affections for Jesus. I don't care about worship whenever I'm supposed to be doing stuff. I don't I'm not I'm totally disinterested. I know more about sports and TV and blogs and junk more than I know about Jesus. Here's the great news. Here's the great news for you. Look at 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's amazing news for you and me this morning. He came to save you. Put your faith really in him. You can be made dead and now alive. In the same way that Abraham carried his son Isaac up to the mountain to put him to death. You carry, not your sin, you carry yourself up there. Lay yourself on that table and kill yourself and let Christ now live in you. That's what must happen. You must die. You must decrease. He must increase. Galatians 2.20 For I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life, I live in, in the, faith, the life I now live is by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No longer are you alive. He is alive in you. You were crucified at the cross. And so what I want you to do this morning is think about these four things. Think about these essential aspects of the faith. Number one, confess that you are a wretchedly, terrible, horrible, just like me, sinner. Which should stir real affections for Christ if you've been awakened, if you've been made alive. The second thing is that to realize your faith and love for others and your faith and love for Jesus were given to you by him. You had no hope of actually ever doing it, which again should stir affections for Jesus. Realize that everything is about His glory and not about yours at all. And lastly, start the fight of faith. Start the fight of faith. Follow through. Live for Him the rest of your life. Don't let at the end of your life, when you stand before God, The many in Matthew 7 be you. Everyone. Should think about this. Everyone should let the weight of Matthew 7 scare them. And not be scared and put your faith in Christ just because you're scared. There won't be people in heaven. Who are there just because they're scared of hell. The people in heaven are there because they love Jesus. So find the faith that Christ gives you and put it in him and find the affections that you need and continually live in that. Worship him with your life. Endure to the end so that you will be saved. And when you do, Philippians 1, 6, you realize he who began a work, good work and you will carry it to completion. He is the one who did it which in the end gives him more glory because he sanctified you. You didn't sanctify yourself. This next song for us as we go into a time of worship will be a time of self-reflection. This will be a time where you really ask the hard questions. Am I just going through the motions and going to end up like the people in Matthew 7? Or do I have real, true love affections for Jesus? Really, true, Heartfelt, saving faith. I understand the real aspects of the gospel and I am on mission. Because I'm not interested by Tuesday, you've forgotten everything I've said. I'm not interested in that. We have enough consumeristic mentality who just cares about some information and doesn't care about the true things about Christ. Don't treat the things of Jesus like the things of this world. Do true self-reflection this morning. And let's stand and worship him. But I want you to take the first song to really think about yourself. Not other people. Don't pray that God's really moving in the heart of someone else right now during this first song. You pray about yourself. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And God, I just know that. (laughs) I know my, my standing before you. I mean, who am I? I am no one. I am just a man. Who am I to stand here and preach your word? It's only because of your grace that is overflowed for me. That I might have faith and love in you. So, Father, I pray, God, that. This message this morning wouldn't be heard as a pastor saying it, but would be heard as the Holy Spirit saying it. God, please, if there's anything I've said or done that was not honoring to you, erase those things. From our minds. Awaken real affections, regenerate hearts this morning. Maybe some of you came in this morning. not expecting really anything. And maybe right now the Holy Spirit's pushing, pointing in on your heart. And as dark as your heart might be, as hard as your heart might be, because it hasn't seen or felt affections for Jesus in so long that you don't even know how that feels. It's a struggle for you to wake up in the morning and give God five minutes and it not be out of duty rather than delight. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Beg Christ this morning for real, renewed love affections. Confess that you haven't loved him the way you should and ask for him to overflow with the grace of faith faith and love in him. And perhaps some of you this morning don't know Christ. You've heard about Jesus, you've been in church, maybe your whole life. And as you hear this story of Matthew 7. You're slowly realizing that that's you. You've served. But never loved. And you desperately don't want at the end of your days for him to say away from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. But to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. Pray for help this morning. Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, come. Help us. Teach us. Guide us. Awaken affections, real affections not not guilt but conviction it's in your precious name we pray